This program may contain explicit language. Also, we have a newsletter coming out. It's at slate.com slash gist news. Now on with the possibly filthy show. It's Wednesday, January 9th, 2019 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. We work will no longer be we work. The giant co-working conglomerate will now be we, just we, which was great news to diminutive Irishmen everywhere. Oh, no, you don't, Danny. I want to get into the Irish accent. Fancy a wee place to rest your feet within the gig economy. We've got a wee cold brew machine. Can give you a trifle of the caffeine buzz. So WeWork loses the work. The Facebook lost the the. Dunkin' Donuts lost the donuts. Kentucky Fried Chicken lost the Kentucky Ride Hicken. It seems the dream of all brands is to become so big and omnipresent that you could just drop most of your name and we still know. And it's not, it's not just a recent trend, the National Biscuit Company, that was Nabisco, but we have gone further than ever before. This week, it was announced that MasterCard would no longer be MasterCard. And, you know, it's not even going to be MC because Scat Cat has that moniker locked down. MasterCard will just be the logo, that Venn diagram, the mashing together of the yellow and the reddish circles that has been their symbol. And now their symbol is their soul. And what is the resulting red and yellow mashup? What is in the middle of that Venn diagram? Just a splotch of orange. How appropriate in the Trump world. But if you think MasterCard has achieved the pinnacle of branding by not just dropping last names or eschewing the words or existing in a post-text form, there are other steps that we could take this. For one, the MasterCard logo, like the Target logo, is still known as the MasterCard logo and the Target logo. You look at that and you say the old name of the brand that they want to get away from. Not so with Nike. That is just called the swoosh. So I predict soon the swoosh will drop the S and be the whoosh, but not really the whoosh. It will just be this faint whispery sound that is evoked whenever a bunch of bicyclists wearing Nike breeze by. Whoosh. The whoosh will be any whisper or any breeze or any tingling of the skin by a displacement of air. Whoosh. Can you feel it? Our branding work is done. On the show today, I spiel about the empty statements from our leaders broadcast to all of the TVs yesterday and the equally consequential statements that were covered on like maybe C-SPAN 2 today. But first, her essay on millennial burnout struck a chord, a discordant chord. I didn't know so many people could hear in that register, that kind of chord. But in this interview, which is the first broadcast or podcast or Meerkat or Snapchat interview with BuzzFeed's Anne Helen Peterson, we discuss how never getting to the bottom of that to-do list isn't a personal failing necessarily. It might be more of a societal or even a generational one.
So there's this commercial, and in it, everyone's walking around with a bar graph above their heads. I don't know. It's, it's like insurance or something about your IRA. But the thing is, everyone can see the bars, and you look at everyone else's bars, and you see who has the bigger, I think it's a big green bar. And I often think about this in relationship to the to-do list. And I wonder if we all walked around with our to-do list, which is usually on our phone, not even written out, just the length of it above our heads, what would it look like? I always think mine must be so much longer than everyone else, even in my neighborhood. But I don't know. Maybe everyone thinks this about their to-do list. I mean, I have all these projects I'm working on and a couple of these kids and, you know, I have this show where every day I'm jotting down ideas. But then again, I'm not a millennial. Maybe millennials have even bigger bars and maybe the bars are crushing them. In her new essay, Anne Helen Peterson writes about this, how millennials became the burnout generation. Just getting to the bottom of the to-do list has proven fraught. Hello, Anne. How are you? Thanks for coming on. I'm doing great. Um, So you definitely have tapped into a common feeling in a big way. But the question that I want to pursue is, is your diagnosis correct? So what you did is you named the bubonic plague, but did you, are you correctly realizing what the vector of contagion is? So we'll get into all of that, but your thesis is that not only is this uh, feeling and this anxiety generational, but it's uh, common in the default position. Yeah, that's my thesis. I think that it, I, I mean, I think that it, generations are smudgy, you know, like I don't think that if you were born in 1980 instead of 1981, that somehow these things are not afflicting you. Uh, it's more that people who are in the workforce today, I think, are afflicted by many of these things. So then is it economic? Uh, yeah, I think the prime, I mean, like there's a whole way that I could have done this essay in a much more Marxist <laughs> sense. Um, and I think that like the the primary thing that is causing us burnout is, you know, trying to be a human under capitalism. But at the same time, you know, how do you talk about that in a way that doesn't alienate people and that actually connects to their day-to-day experience, which they often don't articulate in our society as living under capitalism. You know, a lot of the things that millennials have been taught is, you know, if you can self-optimize, if you can make yourself even more efficient, then you will get a great job that you're passionate about. Like you will find happiness. But the thing with self-optimization is that instead of, you know, getting better jobs with better benefits uh, as we do more work, it's actually that the jobs and the security of those jobs and the, you know, the ability to retire, like everything that we associate with stability, economic stability, that's increasingly difficult to find. Right. So there's a catchphrase there, self-actualization, and there's uh, an acknowledgement of a feeling. But maybe the diagnosis is just this. The median American born in the 1980s, right in the middle of millennialism, had family wealth that's 34% below what earlier generations held at the same age. And that's according to the Federal Reserve Bank. So all of this and, and what you're talking about are the symptoms, perhaps, of such a basic fundamental fact. Yes. You know, millennials, most of us entered the job market during the economic downturn. So for us, we're like, oh, the recovery is in full swing. Why am I still, I'm supposed to be an adult now. Like I'm in my mid thirties. Where is my 401k savings? Where is my mortgage? Where, Where, I'm supposed to be having kids now. But if you haven't reached that point, you know, if you're essentially now reaching the point that previous generations many of them had upon graduation, 
then you feel that incredible stunting and then that incredible shame at not having what your parents had at that age. And so that's everything from, you know, when we talk about generational wealth, I think that's an abstract concept to some people. Like, they're like, of course I'm not inheriting money from my parents yet. It's more like, okay, so my parents couldn't pay for college, so I took out a ton of loans. So I'm in the hole, (laughs) right? Like, that's how we don't think of how much money we have or even how much savings we have. It's more in terms of how much is our student debt loan right now? Like, how difficult would it be for me to even dream of something like owning a house, let alone a car? Yeah. Okay. So this is all true. This is the background condition. Um, People, uh, especially within the age cohort that you are in, experience it acutely. But can you connect that to the grabbing anecdote in the beginning of not being able to get to the post office, how that stands as a symbol or as a representative for the malaise um, or burnout you're talking about. Yeah, so I call this Aaron paralysis, which is a totally ridiculous term. Uh, it, But it was like, how do I describe the fact that I – like the guy that I mentioned in the beginning of this who can't get to the post office, can't manage these very simple tasks to mail his registration to vote. Yeah. But the thing about burnout is that it makes, like there's a study that I include in the piece where it shows that when you are burnt out um, because of job insecurity, because of financial precarity, you know, it decreases your IQ. <laughs> so what this does is it basically makes you make stupid decisions. Mm-hmm. And so things like not being able to get your act together to go register to vote, those are a symptom of burnout. That doesn't mean that I'm excusing it. It's more, I mean, this is the whole thing about the article. None of it is like, it's okay that you can't get your shit together. It's more, oh, here's why. Like, yeah. if you can name this, then you can see it. I think that there are a bunch of things going on. It's such a good essay. I think that there might be a bunch of things going on. I think that maybe the answer to the Aaron's question is one thing, but the big, huge, overweening question is how rational slash explicable is our burnout? And then that leads to the questions, and is, does the solution lie within ourselves, how we self-conceptualize this condition, or does it lie within society? You know, a lot of the initial response to whenever millennials talk about anything is buck up, right? Yes, yes. You know, like I quote, I quote a, a piece written by a millennial publication that says, adulting is hard as life because life is hard. Mm-hmm. Like life has always been hard, right? Like this is something that people who advocate for things like universal income or, you know, what's going to happen with increased automation? Like are we going to have – Is it the end of work? Like, what do we do with that? I think there are ways to think about how we labor that isn't just trying to fix the symptoms, but maybe trying to actually fix our relationship with labor. And that means not just addressing labor, of course, but also addressing systemic racism and all of these other factors, which is a huge thing. And You know, there are people who have rejected the fact that there's even mention of, like, until we overthrow the capitalist system at the end. You know, they're like, I was on board with this essay until she mentioned capitalism, right? And to me, that's an incredibly – that's an incredible misread of the essay because I do think that capitalism is at the root of this problem. 
Yeah, it's our relationship to capitalism, and it's not that we yeah. haven't had capitalism. Is it? So you're saying it's an example of both can be true, both that the uh, the grinding gears of capitalism as its experience makes us feel this way, but also there are things that the personal that the person can do apart from uh, uh, upending the system that can be useful. Well, I think you know, think about Marxism, right? Like. It's all about the laborer experiencing this alienation from labor, right? You, there's still the personal, but it leads to systemic change. Like, you have to think of it as a system in order to do anything about it because the single individual can experience it and acknowledge it, but they cannot change it by themselves, which is why something like Lean In, which is all about how do I change my personal behavior yeah. or any sort of how-to or, like, here's how you fix your own burnout. Like, yeah, like— of course, you can acknowledge it, but it's not going to change. Like, the symptoms are not going to go away until the structures change. There is another—I just want to ask about this. So, uh, this is Judy Wiseman. Her basic theory is that we keep blaming technology, and we've done it since the ages of, you know, locomotives and the telegraphs, and there's all this technology that caused anxiety running around us, like electricity, that doesn't cause us anxiety anymore, and we just keep replaying this and blaming our current technology. Do you think there's anything to that? Well, I think there's facile ways of blaming technology, which are oftentimes the way that millennials and technology are are written about, and then I think that there's more sophisticated ways. So, I do think that electricity is probably part of our burnout process, right? Because we can work more. Like even, you know, the industrial age, like the anxiety is in so associated with that was the anxiety of the of modernity. And yeah. for me, the more vivid way in which technology has changed my life and increased burnout, made it my my lived condition is just like accessibility. Like I am accessible at all times and there is an expectation that I respond at all times. And whether that's with Slack and like always being working all the time or email or text message, all of these things, there is no delineation between on the clock and off the clock. And I'm also thinking about the idea of burnout and electricity. Now burnout, if it's a light bulb, means you can't use it again, whereas burnout with pre-electric forms of light like a candle meant that you can at least uh, reignite the wick. That's true. That's true. That's a good analogy. Um, I mean, I I don't know where to go with that. No, yeah, yeah. yeah. You need need another candle, though, if the (laughs) candle burns all the way down. I think we should end with uh, an Elton John lyric or something. I don't know. Uh, Okay. (laughs) How much less burnout do you think we'd be feeling if Hillary Clinton were president? A lot. Really? A lot. Oh. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I mean, I argue with people, or I, I mean, I argued actually with our editor-in-chief about this because he doesn't, he thinks that, um, that Trump, especially for reporters, that like reporters have always thrown themselves into their work. But I think that Trump specifically, like for my burnout personally, has exacerbated it and I think has exacerbated a lot of other reporters and just people's lives. So, you know, if we're talking about precarity, right, many people's lives have become much more precarious and much more destabilized because of the Trump administration. And I mean that both in terms of like immigration status, but also just like what is he going to do this morning? You know, just that not knowing 
And that takes an emotional toll. I mean, what if there were, I don't know, if such a person exists, the, the, the Trump voting, MAGA hat wearing millennial who maybe isn't a total freaking monster, okay? Or at least is, <laughs> has the thing where they have the generational, uh, they don't have the generational wealth, they're tethered to their phones, they have all the other things, but then Trump won. How much less burnout are they feeling? I don't know if it's a whole lot less. They probably feel burned out because they think the caravan is real. The caravan is real, but they think the caravan's real and coming for us. I mean, yeah, I don't know. I, that's interesting. Like, I don't know how much of it is, like, what's the, the relationship between fear and anxiety? Like, you know, do you have anxiety? There are people here in Montana who have anxiety that, like, Sharia law is going to be implemented. Yeah. Um, and that, I mean, that's an interesting... And I'm sure there are people who voted for Trump who read my essay and emailed me and, and went... And liked it, you know. I'm not gonna. I haven't pulled them, <laughs> yeah. but that 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 is a good argument. Yeah, that's the fascinating thing to me. How much is I'm going to say rational? I don't really mean rational. I mean um, explicable or a necessary consequence of real conditions in the world we could put our fingers on. And how much is something right. else that's going on with how we were raised or the values we have or something that can be changed just based on how we think. And I don't know the answer. Yeah, I mean, I, I have friends, like, friends who are LGBT who are like, of course I should feel anxiety that something is going to change in my life or that I'm not going to be able to get married or that my kids, like, my parent, like, my legal guardianship of my kids is going to change because, you know, it's only happened thus far for, like, trans people in the military, but that doesn't mean that it couldn't happen for me. And so, like, how do you argue with that? Yeah, we don't that, like, and also like, uh, just a just an anxiety over the fact that like Trump does seem to be very in- unstable. So there is no way to predict what he might tweet about and try to you know change policy wise. I want to challenge that a little bit. I mean, I don't like to admit it, and you're right, but isn't that not not about not not dealing with immigration status? Okay, putting that aside, but. You know, just in terms of actual empirical data, aren't many more people in a better place just looking at the job figures under the Trump administration? I don't. That's not even the question I asked. The question I want to ask is, is that more of a, a function of perception than reality, given, say, the fact that the job figures show that so many more people are employed than were when he took office? Well, this is one of those things that I think millennials will say, Here's how we're gaslit into thinking, like, you should be happy. The job figures are good, right? But those job figures don't measure job stability. It's employment, but it doesn't show, okay, how many people are cobbling together three gigs and a side gig, right? How many people are still struggling to have health insurance under these job figures that are showing the economy is robust? Even something like, I mean, the stock market has changed significantly in the last month, but something like that, when you say, oh, look at those economic markers, like look at how what the stock market did this year. Who is benefiting from the stock market? It's certainly not millennials for the most part. So I think that that's one of those things that like, you feel burnout because everything around you is telling you, like, you have it good. You have it great. And you're like, I don't feel that way. And Helen Peterson is the author of How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation. And she covers politics and so much more from her, uh, from her base in Montana. She does it all for BuzzFeed News. Thank you, Anne. Thank you. This is a pleasure.
And now the spiel. Yesterday, Donald Trump took to the airwaves and created a cacophony of words and sucking sounds that added little to the debate on why he thought that now that he doesn't have control of Congress, now would be a good time to insist that Congress fund a physical barrier that Congress doesn't want to fund. It didn't seem to be a compelling argument. It didn't seem to me to have properties that would compel even voters who are more likely than I to be compelled by the arguments that Trump offered in between wheezes. Ross Duthit of the New York Times writes, the people who didn't want television networks to see the primetime hour last night, or as it turned out, a primetime 10 minutes to the president of the U.S., were implicitly giving Donald Trump a credit he does not deserve. There is a kind of silver-tongued orator who could persuade in any situation, who is legitimately dangerous when given a rostrum or a soapbox or a primetime speech, but that is not our president. His rhetoric is a bludgeon. Actually, I was opposed to the networks granting him the forum, not on the basis of his skills as a speaker, but on the basis of the veracity he has shown as a public figure. I wasn't worried that if broadcast networks gave Trump the platform he'd advance himself, I thought he'd use it to debase them. But that other part of the argument, that's pretty common, and it seems like common sense to say that Trump only uses rhetoric as a bludgeon, as a blunderbuss that can only convince dunderheads. I've learned to not make that argument. I will tell you often when I think his arguments go nowhere, but my skills at predicting how these arguments will land to the crowds where they seem to have landed before, I'm out of that game. I'm not saying that it will move the needle in this debate. I mean, it really was nothing new as an argument, but I'm not sure how appealing it will make Trump seem to the people he wishes to appeal to. I think that there is something to be said that even when he seems like a foolish, doddering, dissolute president, he still seems like a president. And most of the time, he doesn't. So anything he does that makes him seem the least bit presidential, could be helpful. Again, I'm out of the prediction game. I will say there was one way in which the speech did help Trump, and it's that it took away all the attention from the other predictably horrible news going on related to the Mueller investigation. Manafort leaking to the Russians, and that Trump Tower lawyer, Natalia Vetselnaskaya, she was charged with aiding in money laundering. So yeah, it doesn't seem that Trump helped himself much because... I haven't been persuaded that there is a way that Trump could say or do anything that helps himself. I have a feeling that Trump will cave, the government will come back to work, and then he'll use some version maybe of emergency powers to build some version of a barrier, and then he'll lie and say he won. And this is the one case where that allergy he has to the truth, we're always lying, makes me a little bit hopeful. It gives him an out. No one's saying, well, if, if Donald Trump gives in to Pelosi and Schumer, I mean, it'll be clear that he contradicted himself. I mean, what would happen if Trump contradicted himself? Yes, Trump always contradicts himself. He colludes multitudes. The most important thing to know and remember about what Trump wants out of this whole deal is that the Trump 2020 campaign is registered under the website keptpromises.com. Their theme is promises kept. If I asked you what's the biggest promise he made, it's that there will be a wall and Mexico will pay for it. Well, he's not going to get Mexico to pay for it, but he's already unveiled what the lie will be to cover for that. But the there will be a wall part, I can't imagine him campaigning under promiseskept.com without some version of some wall. Now, today, Trump met with Chuck and Nancy, and it did not go well. 
The Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer said that Trump was in a less than bargaining mood. Uh, He asked uh, Speaker Pelosi, will you agree to my wall? She said no. And he just got up and said, then we have nothing to discuss. And he just walked out. And Trump seemed to agree that he didn't like the answer he got. And he walked out of the meeting tweeting, I left a meeting with Chuck and Nancy, a total waste of time. I asked, what is going to happen in 30 days if I quickly open things up? Are you going to approve border security, which includes a wall or steel barrier? Nancy said, no. I said, bye-bye. Nothing else works. So all sides seemed to agree. Trump got a no and he shut the meeting down. Mm, Not all sides. Because Republican Representative Mark Meadows was at the White House saying it was nothing like what the Democrats just said, even though what the Democrats just said was pretty much exactly how the president himself described it. In fact, the Democrats forgot a key detail. See if you could pick it up here. When we entered the room, the president, again, calling all the leaders together to solve this problem. He even brought a little candy for everybody. He started off talking a little bit about wanting to get this solved. He even spoke last night saying in 45 minutes, he says, but I think we could do it in 10. See, if they just agreed with him, it would be over quickly. Wouldn't that be easy? And the candy. Oh, yes, the candy. How's that for sweetening the deal? Maybe the president was subtly suggesting that he'll reopen the government and then they'll build a wall and we'll memorialize that agreement with a now and later. Pelosi countered with an airhead, and Trump got good and plenty mad. They'd hit a sour patch. Kids, Schumer interjected. How about some kisses and we make up? No chuckles, yelled Trump. You goober, said Schumer. The American people will say you skittled the deal, but her fingers are all over it, he moaned. But lest we think this is all a food fight without consequences, Pelosi reminded us that there was a group of workers or would-be workers who are paying high costs. Federal workers will not be receiving their paychecks, and what that means in their lives is tragic in terms of their credit rating, paying their mortgage, paying their rent, paying their car payment, paying their children's tuition and the rest. The president seems to be insensitive to that. He thinks maybe they could just ask their father for more money, but they can't. Now, it does not strike me that progress today was nudged along one bit by that primetime address we heard. And the words, at least from the Democrats today, seemed perfectly reasonable and not at all forced or stilted, which is a bit of a contrast to what we heard last night. Because did you see last night's Democratic response? I mean, okay, Clarissa and Harry, who will give, who will receive... I will give. Okay, here's the situation. You need six to make the bonus round, and your categories left to choose from are water, water everywhere, once, twice, three times Malaysia. It's mine and mine only, not a bird, not a plane. What would you like to go with? It's mine and mine only. Okay. These are things that are awkward for two people to share at the same time. Things that are awkward for two people to share at the same time. Ready, begin. It's in a bathroom. Sink. Uh, you go caca in it. Toilet. Right. Oh, uh, uh, it comes at the end of a movie. Uh, they scroll and say the actors and the best. Oh, the board. credits. Right, right. Credit next. Oh, you put it on your head so you don't get concussed. Helmet. Right. Okay, tissue brand. Uh, name uh, for uh, tissue. Yes. Right. Oh, last night when this happened. President Trump must stop holding the American people hostage. Must stop manufacturing a crisis. And must reopen the government. Thank you. Peter Schumer. Thank you, Speaker Pelosi. A podium! Right, right! It is awkward for two people to share a podium! You win! You play for $5.7 billion! Woo! Woo! 
And that's it for today's show. Hey, do you know about our live show Saturday at Union Hall? Get tickets at unionhallny.com. It's called Subdue the Guru, a chance for you as an audience member to challenge in trivia the following gist guests and gurus. Jody Avergan, Robert Smith, Chris Malamphy, Dana Stevens, Brooke Gladstone. I've even left off a couple. You get to face off against them and prove your smarts. Daniel Schrader and Pierre Bienname produced the gist. They have changed their names to D. Shray and PB365. TJ Raphael, senior producer of Slate Podcasts, has dropped the TJ and the Raphael and the senior producer and the Slate Podcast, and she has now branded herself as of. Thanks to Asia Huggett, who correctly guessed toilet on the second try. The gist, now just gist, going to one day shorten it to just is. We will say this is is which might get us flagged by any terrorist monitoring sites that only consider transcriptions. Oomperu deperu duperu, and thanks for listening. Thank you for arguing with me. It's, it's, um, it's really helpful for me to you know, think through some of these things that my millennial editors, you know, they see it very clearly, but it's, it's good for me.